church week in and week out and bring the word to us so faithfully and and feed us with the word accurately and clearly. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you as a church for supporting me as I've been training and training you um, to serve the Lord and, and continue serving his church. And you all have been a part of that, so I appreciate it very much. Well, please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50 tonight. It's a familiar passage to most of you, I'm sure. It's the one where Jesus is having dinner at the home of a Pharisee, and, and a woman comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus. And Jesus remarks that the magnitude of her love for him is directly correlated with the magnitude of his forgiveness of her. He says that she loved him much, so she can forgive him. passage I've been wanting to preach someday for a long time now. This passage really came alive for me about about six years or so ago. God had gotten my attention and convicted me of sin, more so than, than ever before. I'd always known I was a sinner. In fact, that's what I said I grew up here in the church, but um, I was learning how sinful I was, and God was making that plain to me. And I don't know for sure if this was when I was actually converted, or if I was converted long before, and this was a spiritual growth spurt, if you will, but either way, something had changed. I now really understood what it's like to, to be forgiven a, a massive sin debt that I could never pay. I had a level of joy that I'd never had before. I loved Jesus more than I had before, and I made a break with sin patterns that had been, been persisting in my life before this. Now I can really resonate with what Jesus says in this passage. But I found that it can be easy to forget these things once you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and we need constant reminders of these things. And if we're not careful, we can have pride start to creep back into our lives and start to convince us that we actually do have something to boast about, although we will never admit it. We can start to think that in some way, we helped God out. We were a little easier to save than the next guy, maybe. Well, I found that I need to keep coming back to this passage and passages like this to reorient my thinking, to remind myself of just how much I've been forgiven. And of course, you can't understand forgiveness if you don't understand your sin. And you may have heard people before, or maybe you are someone who questions whether it's, whether it's a good idea to spend as much time focusing on sin as, as we do in, in this church and, and many other churches that are like this one. You may have heard people say things before like, why do we need to spend so much time talking about sin? Shouldn't we just mainly focus on God's love and compassion for us? After all, we're new creatures now in Christ. Shouldn't we just focus on being thankful for God for his forgiveness rather than focusing on I think if we're well-intentioned like that, but mistaken, certainly there can be a morbid interest in sin that's not healthy and not helpful. If we're constantly bemoaning how bad we are and think that that somehow makes us more spiritual or helps us atone for our sin in some way, we're definitely greatly mistaken. 
talking about things that are very good and healthy things for us to have. We need it. Rightly understanding the sinfulness of our sin helps us to both be thankful to God for his grace to us in our conversion, and it also fuels our zeal in fighting the sin that still remains in our lives and we're battling to kill it. Homardiology, though, the doctrine of sin, it's not a very popular topic in our culture these days. We had no other culture. Our culture shies away from even the word sin at all costs. And unfortunately, many believers can, can get caught up in this. We can start to relabel things, call them struggles, or something else. But this theological topic is not unimportant, nor is it a, an abstract reality or a theoretical idea. No, it's very personal. We don't just need a homoideology that informs us about sin in general. As Pastor Farrell was, was teaching us this morning from Romans 7, the law reveals not only sin to us, but it reveals the sin that's in us. We need a personal homoideology. We need a biblically accurate view of the sin in ourselves. And that's even harder to okay with pointing out someone else's sin, but not so much our own. Our culture will tell you that your problem is you need more self-esteem. We'll try to blame shift and redefine sin in order to solve their consciences. And unfortunately, as believers, sometimes we can be more prone to think that way than, than we might realize. In truth, we all think too highly of ourselves. And we're all lifted up in pride at some level. We tend to underestimate our sin, and this stems from spiritual pride. It's hard to see it in yourself. And so it can be tempting to come to a passage like this one and think that it maybe it addresses a problem that doesn't really apply to me. Let's say maybe you're someone who the world would say has a, an inferiority complex. There's no way you could be considered prideful, right? Well, I'd argue that maybe you shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the possibility. Well, how could, be, how could this be the case for you? Maybe it'll help if you'll indulge me for a moment if I give a couple of just hypothetical examples to illustrate what I'm talking about. Think of it as maybe two ends of a spectrum, just to show you that this is something where we, we all struggle. We're all on this, this continuum somewhere. The first end of the spectrum, first hypothetical example, we'll just call him Bob. Sorry if your name is Bob. <laughs> Bob is a goal-oriented grad student with a type A personality, a keen intellect, and an amazing level of personal productivity. He loves to get noticed by his professors. He loves to drop casual comments to his classmates about how well he did on the last exam and about how many extracurricular activities he's able to manage on top of his busy school schedule. When he's at church, he likes to spar with his friends on, in theological debates or to point out all the weaknesses and shortcomings in his pastor's sermons. So Bob might be one end of the spectrum. It's pretty easy to see how he's prideful. But what about someone who's not like that? Maybe you're someone who has a, a sensitive conscience. You're always afraid you might 
an unhappy 16-year-old who lives in a perpetually monotonous family because she's afraid she might be doing something wrong, even though she's not sure what it is. Anytime she does sin, or she thinks she sins, she feels like she has to do something good to make up for it. But she always feels like she's never doing enough. She feels like God is upset with her all the time. So let me ask you, what do these two people have in common with each other? It doesn't sound like they have much in common, does it? The one thing they have in common is they both think of themselves as animals. One thinks too highly of himself, the other thinks too low of himself, right? No. They actually both think too highly of themselves, but it comes out in very different ways in the end. Of course, it's going to be with people that will be much more complicated than that, so I know this is an oversimplification. But how can this be so? How can they both be, be lifted up in pride? Well, it's easy to see in Bob's case. His pride is so palpable, you can cut it with a knife, and then you might get a knife for it. But it's not so easy to see in Steve's case. But in reality, both of them are self-focused. They both succeed. And most importantly, they're both relying on their own strength. The main difference between Bob and Steve is just that when he looks in the mirror, he likes what he sees, and she doesn't. My only purpose in these made-up examples is just to show you that this is a problem that we all face. You may tend to be more like one end of the spectrum than the other, but my goal is just to help you to see that we can all be guilty of spiritual pride in subtle ways, even if it doesn't look much like what you would normally think of as pride. So we all need to see it in this passage tonight to help us battle our spiritual pride. So what's the solution? How can we even see our pride, much less repent of it? How can we get over this fixation on self? How can we be cured of self-love or self-trust by relying on our own efforts? How can we have a love for Jesus that's strong enough to make us forget all about ourselves and actually go with Jesus? Well, that's what this passage tonight is talking about. So to that end, let's, let's jump into Luke 7 and focusing on verses 36 through 50, as I said. And in this passage, Luke is going to, to show us four themes that illustrate the importance of the right view of sin and self. Four themes that illustrate the importance of the right view of sin and self. You can see the first one up there, the, the brokenness of a convicted sinner. Let's look at our passage, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And, he went, and when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, he behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I'd like to imagine what this scene might have looked like. Jesus has just been invited into the home of a, a Pharisee, which might sound kind of odd, but it actually would have been a, a relatively common occurrence for a, a Pharisee, one of the religious elite of the time, to invite a traveling preacher over for a 
10 years, we were listening to what he had to say. There likely would have been other Pharisees and religious leaders there who would have been sharing in the meal and asking questions and discussing theological issues, potentially, and assessing the validity of his teaching. There probably would have been a maybe a semi-public event where someone could have happened by in the street and, and walked in to listen to what was going on. That's probably how the, this woman was able to get in without being stopped. And this is still early on in Jesus' ministry, too. So the Pharisees aren't out to arrest him yet. But there is a growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. In the passage right before this one earlier in the chapter, Jesus has been praising the ministry of John the Baptist. And the Pharisees haven't been so crazy about John ever since he called them a brood of vipers back in chapter 3. And when Jesus identifies John as the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, it says in verse 29 of chapter 7, it says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God blessed, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And Luke has also been just highlighting various characters and their various different responses to Jesus and his teachings. First, you've got the religious leaders. They're growing increasingly hostile. They're proud. And they're scandalized by Jesus' teachings. Second, you've got the crowd, the masses. They're interested, they're, they're intrigued, but they're just passionate, and they're blind to Jesus' true message. They like his miracles, but they're, they're not as interested in his teachings. But thirdly, you've got individuals who, as Jesus would say, they have ears to hear. They recognize their sin. They know that they're helpless. But they do need to understand who Jesus really is. They know that Jesus alone can help them, and they cast themselves on his mercy. Jesus has just been rebuking the Pharisees for their hardness of heart and their, their hard-hearted response to him and to John earlier in this chapter. He compares them to, to children playing with each other. But these children can't decide what game to play with each other. He says in verse 31, he says, to what, what shall I compare to the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, but you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say he has a demon. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's saying to the Pharisees that they're totally out of touch with what's going on. They're out of sync. John has come, come along with a dirge. He preaches the he preaches sin and the need for repentance. He preaches the the bad news that precedes the good news of the gospel. Pharisees won't get on board. They claim him to be a demon possessed. And then Jesus comes along with the good news of the gospel, and they don't like that either. They claim they accuse him of loose living, of hanging out with the wrong crowd. They're totally out of sync with what's going on. It's not appropriate for what's going on. They don't realize God's purpose. It'd be like showing up at a at a ball game dressed in a tuxedo or, or showing up at a wedding in your pajamas. 
or to use Jewish analogies, it's like the annoying little brother when his sisters are playing yodin, and he storms in with his thick horse and six guns, and he wants to play shootout. It's not appropriate in this situation. What Jesus is saying has a lot of touch with what's going on here. You don't get it. You don't understand it. What that, you don't understand what God is doing. So that's as kind of the backstory to our passage here. We're now to really an extreme example invited in for a, a meal, and it says in verse 37, it says, and behold, a woman of the city, who is a sinner. And I'll stop right there. I need to give a caveat because some people assume that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But I don't believe that's the case. It's true that in all four of the gospel accounts, there's a woman who anoints Jesus with, with a perfume. But the problem is that not all of the details match up between the accounts. And that's not really a problem. I think that the, the simple solution is that there are just two separate anointing events that are recorded for us in the Gospels. There's one recorded here in Luke, but there's another separate event that's recorded for us in the other three Gospels. True, there are some striking similarities between this one in Luke and the one recorded in the other Gospels. Both events happen in, in the house of a man named Simon, both women have an alabaster flask of perfume that they anoint Jesus with. But notice some of the differences. The host in the in the other three gospels is Simon the leper, and here it's Simon the Pharisee. If there were a Pharisee who had leprosy, it's very unlikely that he would have been having people over in his home. So this is probably a different Simon. And back then, Simon was a very common name in this culture. It's not surprising that there would be two men with the same name. You've got Simon Peter and Simon of Cyrene, for instance. It would be like John or Joel to us. Also, this anointing event happens much earlier on in Jesus' ministry. I think that's one of the biggest differences. The event in the other three Gospels happens just days before the Passover, before Jesus is arrested. And this is clearly not Mary the sister of Lazarus who's in the bathroom with the crowd. She says she's a sinner. Someone who has a, a public reputation for her sinfulness. Some people think this is Mary Magdalene, but really the text just doesn't tell us who it is. So at any rate, these differences lead me to conclude it's, it's a different event than, than what goes on in the, the other gospel studies. Don't mind me being confused there, but but what we do know about this woman is that she's described as a sinner. In all likelihood, in all likelihood, she may well have been a prostitute. But we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. But at any rate, she'd been she'd gotten word that that Jesus was at the home of the Pharisees. Jesus had to go see her. Presumably, although the text doesn't give us this much detail, presumably she must have had a, either a previous with Jesus, or she had heard his teaching from someone else. But the text sounds like she had already believed the gospel and been forgiven of her sins. So she decides she must go thank Jesus for what he's done for her in her life. She brings an alabaster flask of perfume with her. We don't know for sure what kind of perfume. 
scene it was, but it likely would have been pretty expensive, both because it was hard to get and also because it was it was necessary. So scene would have been highly valued in that culture. Back in those days, it was well, Israel's a, a hot climate for one thing, but also you, you didn't have AC and the, the standards of hygiene were obviously not what they are today. So perfume would have been a, a valuable thing to have, and so she brings it with her. Who knows, maybe she she was able to buy this perfume as her wages as a prostitute, if that's what she was. But again, that's speculation, I'm not making sure. And she probably intended to use it to anoint Jesus' head, which would have been a, a display of great respect and honor. But look at verse 38. It says, And standing behind him at his feet, began to wet his feet with the tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She stays behind Jesus and stands in the crowd. She probably wouldn't have been allowed to, to make it all the way to the table. She would have been in a, in a reclining position with his head toward the table and his feet facing away. So it's understandable how she could make it to his feet but not his head. So the, the standing there, probably listening to what Jesus is saying, she's overcome with emotion. And she starts to weep uncontrollably, and tears are falling down. She sees they're landing on Jesus' feet, and she notices, she's probably embarrassed, but she notices that, that Jesus' feet haven't been washed yet. And so she decides to make the most of the situation and uses the water from her tears to wash his feet. Then she lets her hair down, which would not have been normal in public. And she uses her hair to wipe his feet dry. And the whole time she's constantly kissing his feet. It's a, an outrageous display of affection. This would have been a breach of normal propriety, especially considering what sort of woman she was. Then she breaks open the flask of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it. She, as I said, she likely used this perfume on his feet didn't make it to his head. Her act evidences that she was a gift with the majesty of this king and the magnitude of God's mercy to her. She was overcome. Try to imagine this woman's emotions first. It must have been just a mess. She's weeping uncontrollably. Probably would have caused quite a scene. The kind of scene where at first everyone in the room tries to be polite and pretend like they don't notice. But then it, it escalates and it becomes something that's hard to ignore. So how's our Pharisee taste going to handle this situation? Well, that brings us to the, the second scene. And that's the blindness of the prideful king. The blindness of the prideful king. See, this Pharisee was no less of a sinner than the woman was. But he was blind to verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Full of pride. Pride of blindness. It was blinding him to his own sinfulness. It was blinding him to the reality of who Jesus really was. And it was blinding him to what was going on. Can you imagine witnessing a scene like this? 
to get saved from a horrible past and have his sins washed clean in his blood. And you're hosting the very person who saved you. It's Yahweh God in human flesh under your roof. Son of God, the promised Messiah, Savior of the world. And you see a soul that you saved question may have been in his mind. But at any rate, he, can, he concludes that Jesus is no prophet, whoever he is. And you can imagine how, how damaging something like this would be to a traveling rabbi's reputation. You have someone who's a known prostitute come, in, come up to you in public and start fawning all over you. You certainly won't get far in gaining hearing and teaching, I'm sure. But that's how Simon was thinking of it. He was thinking of it on earthly terms. He wasn't seeing what was going on spiritually. He didn't understand what was really going on in his being. And that led him to conclude that whoever this guy is, he's definitely no prophet. He concludes not so much that Jesus is immoral necessarily, as that Jesus is just ignorant of who he is. said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. You can almost hear the severity in Jesus' voice here. Simon's probably a little nervous for what's going to come next, so he plays it cool and he says, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes on. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. declaring bankruptcy and, and moving on with your next venture like you can nowadays. No, back then, if, if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you were totally on the hook for it. The only way to get out of a debt that you couldn't pay was to sell everything you had. And then if that didn't bring enough money, the only other thing to do was sell yourself into slavery, and maybe even your family into slavery. So you better believe that if you're in a huge debt that you couldn't pay, 
making subtle points, but the whole problem with Simon is that he thinks that he's only making a little bit of a point. But this woman knew she was being judged. There was no fooling her pride. She knew better now. Now it's a real difference between her and the Pharisees. It wasn't the amount of sin that was in the ordinance. It was the accurate understanding of that sin. Simon's misplaced evaluation reveals that he had been fundamentally misunderstood by that woman. His concern is him. He doesn't understand any sin. His worry is that no sin is there. Now Jesus interprets the reason that the woman is doing what she's doing. Verse 37, rather. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are which are many. Sorry about that. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus shows that the reason this woman loves him so much is because she's been forgiven so much. But again, it's not really about the amount of sin. It's the fact that she sees it accurately, and Simon doesn't. If he had seen his sin accurately, he wouldn't think of himself as the one who's only sinned a little. But also, don't miss the fact that Jesus has just dropped a bombshell by what he said. He said this woman is forgiven. Simon would have been astonished to hear him say that. What do you mean she's forgiven? How do you know that? What gives you the right to say something like that? Who do you think you are? Jesus doesn't make that explicit yet. He just says her sins have been forgiven. And notice it says her sins have been forgiven. And something that happened in the past when the Greek is in the perfect tense, it shows that it's something that her sins have already been forgiven. That's that's one evidence that she may have been forgiven before she even arrived on the scene. She believed whenever she heard the gospel and she was saved.
wouldn't say that it's your Bible knowledge or her grief over sin or even her tremendous gratitude, although all those things are good and they're important. But none of those things save her. She was saved by grace through faith. She wasn't better or smarter than Simon. She was saved and he wasn't simply because he believed what Jesus said about anything. We don't know when she heard the message, as I said before, but whenever she heard it, she believed it. She believed what Jesus said about himself and about her sin, about her utter need of helplessness before him, and about his ability to use her now. She was done looking at herself for solutions. She knew that there was no hope there. She knew that her only hope was to cast herself entirely on the mercy of Jesus. That was what put her apart from the crowd of Pharisees. And that's what made her less than a sinner. So if you want to love Jesus more, be willing to see your sin in light of his mercy so that you can truly understand how much you've been forgiven by Jesus. And you want to see your sin miraculously so you can believe what the Bible says about it, both about your sin and about God's mercy toward that sinner. So how's your love for Jesus? Has it started to grow cold? Has it lost some of the, the freshness that was once there in your relationship with him? Maybe you've started thinking too highly of yourself. You look down on you look down on others whom you see as less mature or less gifted or less knowledgeable than you. Or, on the other hand, do you envy those who are more gifted or more mature than you? Do you compare yourself to other people a lot? Do you resent other people who you think are better than you in some way? Well, that's pride. It's an evidence that you're call it your personal homoideology, your understanding of your own sinfulness, is off kilter and needs to be readjusted. It's really a prideful place. We need to be aware of unbelief, even if we're truly converted. We need to be careful that we actually believe the gospel that we say we believe. And of course, I believe the gospel is not fair, and, and we do if we're, if we're believers, but there can still be mingled with that some unbelief as well. Does your, does your life reflect that you believe the gospel practically in your everyday life? How might you know over time whether that's the case? Or do you have a tendency to focus too much on your own accomplishments? Do you take pride in your obedience or your perceived maturity level? Are you constantly terrified of doing something wrong? Are you living as if you're in danger of somehow tarnishing an otherwise pretty clean track record? Or are you living as though you have some ability to maintain a right standing with God, but just how hard am I to be careful enough 
question. Are you living as if the Lord just takes one little mistake and you leave your life change for God? If so, you're living as though your life change is for God to come to you. Self-righteousness. Don't feel sad when a, when a believer forgets where he lives and there's a mentality of self-righteousness that they don't realize. Regardless of of what your your natural tendencies are, whether you're someone who thinks of something special because of all that you've done, or whether you're someone who's constantly disappointed with yourself and afraid of somehow doing the right thing. Either way, you're focusing your own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. Then what's so sad about living this way is it hinders you from living a truly peaceful life. hypothetical person, Bob, you may do a lot of good things outwardly, but it won't be truly fruitful and useful because it's motivated by pride and selfish ambition. You won't be loving other people because, frankly, you too busy loving yourself. You won't be patient with other people with their weaknesses and flaws and sins because you don't see your own. You'll be like the noisy gong and You may have incredible gifts to use, and this is the sad part, incredible gifts to use in the church, but they won't actually do the church any good if it's not motivated by love. Love for God and love for other people. And that's what makes the service of the Lord truly useful. But you can't love God or other people if you're too busy loving yourself. Like this woman in the story, real love for God that overflows in a love for other people. Don't y'all understand me too? Or the only other end of the spectrum is more like my other fictional character, Sue. You may not be living a peaceful life because you're, you're too busy chasing your tail spiritually, trying to dot all your I's and cross all your T's and make sure you don't mess anything up. You'll be afraid to take on new responsibilities because you're afraid you might fail. You'll spend way too much time worrying about things that you could have used in serving the Lord. You'll be hesitant to help other people with their spiritual needs because you feel like you're always the weak one who needs help. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not at all saying that if you really do need help, you can't seek help from other people. Church is, that's what the church is for. We need to help each other in the body. So that's a good thing. But we don't want to stay there. Your, God's goal for you is not that you live the rest of your life in crisis mode. But either way, regardless of what your natural tendencies are, which side of the spectrum you may be on, God wants you living a fruitful life. A life of telling other people about Jesus and what he's done for you. And a life of helping other people grow in the grace of God. Where do you start? Well, you need to start in what might seem like an odd place. Biblical understanding of sin. Of your own sin. You learn to see your sin in relation to the utter, utterly holy perfection of God. 
start to see your sin this way, it'll turn you from your pride and your self-reliance. Next, you need to learn the biblical view of God's love and forgiveness for you. Once you've told a grasp of the bad news, you don't stay there. You need to seek yourself in the good news. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And you'll know you're growing in this when your attitude starts to change and you become more like this woman. And your attitude is less like that of this type of Pharisee. When you stop sitting back with a critical attitude like Simon, when you, when you begin to have true joy and gratitude, and you just can't help but express that joy and gratitude to others, and when you're motivated to be a servant of the Lord and serving the church. And just in case any of you are hearing me tonight and thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've never experienced anything like this. It sounds nice, but it doesn't sound realistic. Well, maybe you need to meet Jesus for the first time. Even if you grew up in church, maybe you were raised in a Christian home, maybe you always thought of yourself as a Christian. But this joy and gratitude in you having your sins canceled, this human experience, This woman didn't have a, a leg to stand on morally before God, and neither do you. You have to come with empty hands. You have to ditch any confidence in your own efforts to come in simple faith. Jesus promises to be with you in your And for those of you who are believers, how's your love for Jesus? How's your love for others changed? Have you become more like your Messiah this morning? Have you stopped trusting in Jesus to take care of your sins and started becoming Christian Protestants? The solution for all these problems is to remember only one thing this morning. And you never could have dealt with it on your own. But to do that, you have to see your sin the way God sees it. Otherwise, you'll be tempted to think, embarrassing in public. Your sin is not like a, a wet spot on your face. Your sin is not like a bucket arriving on your leg. Your sin is like a precipitation on you relying dead at the bottom. And God breaks you up and he breathes life into your dead soul. self-reliance, 
Lord, I don't know what the, the needs are for all of us here tonight, but I pray that whatever we need in each of our own individual lives, that you would use this passage to work in our hearts to remind us of your love.